Good morning once again. My name is Pastor Ransom Kent. I'm thankful that those of you who have joined us via our, our streaming service are here with me. I want to just encourage you that um, I understand, I know, uh, that this is a hard time. And there are so many distractions and we are feeling very weary. And so I want to encourage you this morning, uh, do your best to let distractions kind of uh, flow to the wayside, uh, to depart, uh, to put those things aside. And, and my encouragement this morning is just to allow the Word of God to speak to you. Wherever you're at, whatever frustrations you're having, whatever exhaustion you're feeling, let the Word of God in this morning. And so um, I just wanted to start with that encouragement. I am excited to say that we're starting a brand new series. We're going to hold on to this series through the summer. It's called The Kings of Summer. It will be primarily focused on First and Second Kings. First and Second Kings is kind of a, um, a recap of the uh, rise and fall of the ancient Israel, Israel monarchy. It's very Shakespearean. There's lots of uh, fantastic stories and incredible uh, tragedies, uh, things like that. And um, uh, we'll be starting this morning, like any good series in a new book, in a completely different book. So we're going to be starting in First Samuel to start off this series in First and Second Kings. Why would that be? Well, King Saul, the first king of Israel, kicks off this, uh, this lineage of kings that will uh, rule in Israel. And so we're going to look at King Saul, and he is not in First and Second Kings, he's in First Samuel. And so we'll be looking at that. Um, one of the reasons we're, we're following First and Second Kings this summer, now I set this, uh, this series up last May, so it's not as though this is a reaction to what's going on, but the idea that, that is a kind of surfacing as I've been studying and preparing is that uh, the, if, you're a, if you were a Joe Schmo, ancient Israelite, in this time, you lived in a roller coaster of change. Uh, there was one king this day, another king that day, uh, there was invaders this day, no invaders that day. There was a, 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 a nice crop this year, a bad crop that year. And so um, I can't think of any, but there seems to have been some major changes in our lives recently. Um, uh, and irregardless, before all this happened, uh, we, our lives are just co- are a constant bombardment of change. Change, change, change. Every change more rapid than the next and, or the last. And so I, I just think in the, as we study First and Second Kings... Uh, we can grow confident in God's plan through changing times. We can see that although the the kingdom of Israel saw many ups and downs and ultimately was exiled into Babylon and Assyria, God's plan remained the same. And so my hope is that we start here in 1 Samuel 13 and we follow it to the end of the summer, uh, studying different kings throughout the history of Israel that we will be encouraged in that way. Allow me to add some context here. Last fall, we finished the book of Exodus, or finished off our study in Exodus. The Israelites had just received the commandments of God and were venturing into the wilderness uh, to go and take for themselves a possession of the promised land. So I'd like to add in just a very brief connection between that moment and where we arrive here with King Saul. And so uh, after the Exodus, of course, God saved his people from slavery in Egypt through Moses. Moses at one point disobeyed God. And his punishment was that he would never enter the the promised land. And so before the Israelites, they traveled for 40 years in the desert, and before they entered the promised land, the mantle of leadership passed from Moses to a gentleman named Joshua. And Joshua, uh, through his leadership, led the people to take over mostly the the promised land. There was still a lot of fear, 
a lot of disobedience, a lot of disbelief amongst the Israelites at that time. And so there were certain portions of the land they never really fully took uh, possession of. But regardless, Joshua brought the people he, he, into conquest and they took over uh, Canaan. After Joshua passed away, uh, the, the Israelites moved into a time of, I would say, s- somewhat chaos. Uh, they went through a cycle, and it started with them following God, but then they'd rebel against God, and then God would bring in another nation to oppress them and rule over them, and then God would rise up a judge, they would call them a judge, and the judge uh, would, would free, deliver the people of Israel from their oppression, and then again the people would serve God. But then, uh, of course, the cycle would repeat over and over and over again. Uh, at the end of the book of Judges, where they leave the scenario of the Israelites, you read this in Judges 21-25, it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. For the author of Judges, this is a terrible, terrible thing. He's making a case. We need a singular ruler. We need someone to lead us toward God. Someone who can tell us what is right and wrong and lead us into obedience. And so, uh, then we, we come across Samuel. So Judges, there's a, uh, the book of Ruth there. It's a, it's a, um, a case to be made that, that King David, who we'll get to later on, is actually an Israelite king, but um, he's a worthy king. He has got, he's an heir to the throne. But then we, we jump to Samuel, 1 Samuel, and there we meet the man named Samuel. And Samuel is a young boy at, at, when we meet him. He's dedicated to the temple. He becomes a priest. And then eventually he becomes a, the judge of Israel during this time that's the, the, before the kings. Um, Samuel did a good job. He was a great judge. And you can read about that all through the beginning of 1 Samuel. Uh, what happens here is he appoints his sons to replace him. They're not good guys. They are corrupt. They steal the sacrifices. They, it says in the Scripture they take God lightly. They don't take God seriously. And because of this, the Israelites sit down with Samuel and they say, listen, you're old. We like you. You're old. But your sons are junk. We don't want them as our judges over us. And they say, you need to appoint a king over us. For the stated purpose, we want to be like every other nation. Now this declaration, this request, uh, it ticks uh, Samuel off and he goes to God complaining. He says, can you believe that they said this? And God says to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So you see, God had set up Israel to be a unique place, a unique nation state where they didn't need a monarchy. They had God. God was their God and He was their people. And if they simply obeyed Him and did what He called them to do, they would have a a supernatural king. And yet, in this moment, with the prospect of Samuel's sons taking over, as judges, they say, no, 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 we don't want that. We want that. A king, And so what God says is, we're going to grant their request. We're going to give them a king. So Samuel goes back to the Israelites and he says, okay, God's going to give you a king, but I'm warning you. Here's what a king's going to do. He's going to steal your sons from you and put them in the army. He's going to take your crops from you to feed himself. He's going to take your money from you to, to build his own wealth. A king is going to rule over you and it's not going to be pleasant. And the people say, listen, whatever you say, we want a king. We want a king. And so it says in 1 Samuel 9 that there was this guy named Saul. Saul was taller than everybody and better looking than everybody. And they said, that's the guy that we want to be our king. That's a brief history from Exodus to right now. And so what's happening is Saul becomes king, and at first we see that it seems as though he's on God's agenda. It seems as though he is very faithful to God. He worships God. 
And, and in his kind of inauguration at a place called Gilgal, you'll hear that quite a few times today, uh, he's given a command. And so here's, here's Saul's job description. It says he's to fear the Lord, obey His voice, and do not rebel against God's commandments. So what is Saul's job? Saul's job is simply to obey God, to be a faithful servant and worshiper of God, and to lead the people in that way. And so here we arrive at 1 Samuel 13. The verses I'm going to read this morning are 8-14. through 14. What's happening here is Saul's been king for two years, and the infamous Philistines have invaded the land of Israel. And so this is a, a crisis, one of the first major crises of Saul's uh, rule, his reign. Now, what I want to make note of is that we can assert from the passage that when a crisis was afoot, uh, Saul was to do a couple things. He was to send word to Samuel, and then he was to go to this place called Gilgal. Gilgal at this point was a, a holy place for the Israelites. And so what he's supposed to do is go to Gilgal, and then Samuel within seven days would arrive. And what would happen is Samuel and Saul together, the priest and the king, would worship God, sacrifice to God, pray together, uh, uh, ask God what to do, and then they would handle the crisis together based on what God led them to do. So that's where we're at here. I'm going to read verses 8-14 through 14 of 1 Samuel 13. Please follow along as I read. And so Saul... He's at Gilgal, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I will have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which He commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us quickly. Lord, you have given us stories, given us stories in the Old Testament to show us who you are, to show us who we are. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that amongst the distractions, amongst our weariness, amongst all that is going on, all the change, that we would be secure in Your Word, that Your Spirit would come and convict us and show us how You are good to us, how You love us. And I pray that we would be changed this morning through Your Scripture. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in summary, in this passage that we're going to be studying here for the next few moments, Saul commits a sin. Saul commits a sin, and he is punished for that sin. And so what I want to do, we're going to start in verse 8. We're going to look at the circumstances. We're going to discover this sin together. First of all, go with me to verse 8, the very first part. So again, Saul has done what he is supposed to do. A crisis has occurred. The Philistines are in the land. And so he sends a word for Samuel, and he goes to Gilgal. And he's waiting there. He's waiting there for how long? It says here in verse 8, he waited seven days the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come 
to Gilgal. Here's what's going on. Samuel is late. <laughs> Samuel is late. And so the, the appointed time set, wait for me seven days, it has now passed. It's safe, I think, and, and I think generous of us to assume that, that this is day eight where these things are happening. It's not day six and a half, it's day eight. Day seven has completed, and now Saul is sitting here wondering, where is Samuel? And so what happens because Samuel's late? Uh, you look at verse 8b, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. And so remember the warning that Samuel gave the people. What will a king do? He's going to conscript your sons in his army. So he's got his conscript army. He's gathered together the, the fit men of the, of the nation to be in his army. They all know they're waiting for seven days for Samuel. And when Samuel does not show up on time, they begin leaving. And so what's happening? The army, the number of men in the army is shrinking. The army is shrinking. And Saul reacts. Saul reacts. He's a man of action. And so he sees his army, his fighting force, diminishing. And what does he do? Verse 9. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Now, Saul, we have to understand, he's making a deliberate decision to do the offerings himself. And so again, we're asserting that when Samuel showed up, this would be Samuel's job. We know why that isn't here. I'll show you it in just a second. This is Samuel's job. And um, he, uh, he decides because Samuel's not there to do it himself. To do it himself. Now, this is the outward facing sin. This moment. Saul completing the sacrifices. What's the big deal? So a couple of things. First of all, in Numbers 18.7, uh, it, it is very clear that only the priest may offer sacrifices. Only the priest may offer sacrifices. This is part of God's law from the very beginning that He has this special group of people whom He has designated to be those who, who, who perform these rituals, these ceremonies. And Saul is for certain not one of them. Samuel is a priest. Saul is not a priest. And so, first of all, it is understood amongst the Israelites that this is a priest's job. And so Saul deciding to go outside the boundary of that command is a deliberate decision. But also we can see from verse 13 and the end of verse 14 that Saul was given a specific instruction at some point by God about this. It says at the end of verse 13, um, you have done foolishly, excuse me, the middle of verse 13, you have done foolishly. You have not what? Kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which He commanded you, Saul. And then again in verse 14, why is he losing his kingdom? Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you specifically. Saul, despite the general understanding that priests only can offer sacrifice, despite his specific instructions by God that this is not your place to do this, this is Samuel's place, he does it himself. He chooses to disobey. What happens after that? This is where the, the story gets juicy, right? We love this. Samuel crashes the party. Look at verse 10. As soon as he had finished the offering, of course, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. You understand how this went down. He's doing the ceremony thing. Who knows what? And one of his advisors whispers, uh, Saul, uh, Samuel has arrived. You know how this went down. The feeling of, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. Or, well, it's about time. Um, so Saul goes out. I'm sure he was as friendly as can be. Samuel, how you doing? Meet and greet. What's up? Here to do your sacrifice thing. And like any parent whose child has been quiet for too long, <laughs> Samuel knows something is wrong. What have you done? He says at the beginning of verse 11. 
What have you done? I like the rest of 11 and 12 because, yes, the presenting sin was Saul choosing to do the sacrifice himself, but verses 11 and 12 really give us a bird's eye view of Saul's heart and his motivation. Why did he do these things? Why did he choose to uh, very um, uh, uh, deliberately obey, disobey God's law? Why did he choose to do that? Verse 11 and 12 give us his, his inner thoughts. They give us his logical pr- progression to get there. Now, as a side note, if you want to know what a spirit of unrepentance looks like, this is it. This is it. This is a spirit of unrepentance. Let's take a look. This is Saul's perspective on his own sin. So Samuel says, what have you done? And here's first Saul's explanation. Well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, so the army was shrinking, Okay, that his army that he was going to go fight the Philistines with, they were leaving. He saw, well, that's not good. And when the second thing, he, he had to make sure this was in there. Uh, and let's not forget that you were late, Samuel. And you did not come within the days appointed. Your fault. And the third thing, and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. You know the place. Uh, that, so Michmash, in comparison to Gilgal, is a little, little around 10 miles away. So they're not far. Those things are not far. There is danger near. So this is the justifying uh, reasons for why I did this. And now Saul is going to make himself into a martyr. Here's his further justification. And so in verse 12 he says, and so because of those reasons, because the army was shrinking, because you were late, and because the Philistines were bearing down on us, I said to myself, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So he's saying, I hadn't done the thing that would please God yet. Okay? And so what did he do? He says, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. This is rich. I forced myself. What does this mean? The literal translation is the word for self-control. So ironically, what is Saul saying? Saul is saying, listen, because of all these reasons, I self-disciplined myself. I controlled myself to disobey God in this way. It's ironic. And so, that is Saul's perspective on his sin, but we can step back. We have the ability and the privilege to step back, knowing the whole scenario, knowing the judgment that is placed on Saul, and we can give our own perspective. So what, what is our perspective? What should we see here? We should see Saul believing in a God that is a small God. We should see Saul not trusting that God is powerful enough or knowledgeable enough or present enough to handle these circumstances. And so in a sense, what 11 and 12 are saying, if we could interpret it into our own words, what Saul is saying to Samuel is this, Samuel, if you and God just understood my circumstances, if you guys could just see it from my perspective, then you would understand my need to violate God's law. In other words, Saul is saying, God's understanding is flawed. Mine is not. God's laws are out of touch with my current circumstances. Don't you see what's going on? Don't you see? God's commands are not connected to my reality. My my army's leaving. You're late and the Philistines are here. So therefore, what? My wisdom is complete and your wisdom and God's wisdom is incomplete. That's what Saul is saying in verses 11 and 12. So what was Saul's security in it was not in God (laughs) Saul's security is not in God whatsoever 
No, what is what does he trust? What does Saul trust? So from our perspective, we can look at it for again that bird's eye view. What does Saul trust? He trusts he trusts the size of his army. He trusts the punctuality of his own plan, and he trusts the success or the reputation of his leadership. Trust those things. And in concern, in his own concern for himself and, and the things that he values, what did he fail to do? What is his sin? His sin is that he did not wait upon the Lord. We're going to come back to that. We've got to finish this story. We're going to come back to that idea of waiting upon the Lord. So let's finish this story off. There's the sin of Saul. He did not wait upon the Lord. What is the punishment that is dealt to him? Verse 13 is the verdict. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which He commanded you. For then, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. What, I, I summarize this verse by saying Saul had one job. Saul, you had one job to do. That's it. One job. And you didn't do it. What was his job? To obey God. Remember what we said. His job description was fear the Lord, obey His voice, and do not rebel against His commandments. So in a moment, he looked at his kingly duty and he forgot it is not to obey. It's not to obey in his mind. It's to have success. It's to have a big army. It's to be on time. So he violated God's law for these other reasons. He acted foolishly. And then the consequences we find in verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. We know that to be David. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. What did God do? God turned his favor. He turned his face away from Saul and toward another. Now, for those of you who are maybe thinking this is too harsh, for what it's worth, this was never going to work. Okay? Saul was never going to be the last king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel. Why? Because Saul was a human king. And a human king could never fulfill God's purpose and His plan to rule over His people. And so, spoiler alert, every king that we study this summer, every king that we take a look at is going to fall short and fall short drastically. And so as a kind of way of foreshadowing, listen, what God's people need, what they deserve, is a better perfect king. A better perfect king. Pointing towards who? Jesus Christ. And so to, to again, review what is Saul's sin. He did not wait upon the Lord. He did not wait upon the Lord. It's good at this moment, I think, besides me taking a drink, to answer the question, what is waiting upon the Lord? What is waiting on the Lord? I want you to write this down. So um, tell your kids to be quiet just for a second. <laughs> and uh, take this down. Waiting on the Lord is actively looking for opportunities to obey Him. Okay, Waiting on the Lord is actively looking for opportunities to obey Him. One more time. Waiting on the Lord is actively looking for opportunities to obey Him. So waiting on the Lord is not simply this... Uh, is, is definitely not, not even simply, is not this passive inactivity. Alright God, waiting on you to do your thing. I'm just here, ransom, waiting for you. Waiting on the Lord is an action. Waiting on the Lord is an action. Now, there's kind of two sides to it. First of all, there is action waiting on the Lord when things are not unclear. So when things are clear, we have very 
uh, um, clear commands from God on how to live our lives. So, for example, there is no waiting and wondering as to whether we should take care of the poor or not. There's no waiting and wondering as to whether we should be kind to our neighbors or not, or whether we should forgive our brother when he sins against us, or whether we should read our Bible, whether we should pray or get to know God. These things are clear. They are supposed to be regular rhythms in our life. So these are things that God has commanded us very clearly to do in Scripture, and because we are God's followers, God's children, we ought to be doing these things regularly. When it's clear to do what we need to do, we need to do it. We need to obey. But when we talk about waiting on the Lord, and what happens here with Saul is it gets tricky when, when the, the action based on God's law becomes unclear or difficult. Okay, So there will be times in our life where we are moving along, obeying God, and it comes to a place in our life where, where obedience to God, how exactly we ought to obey, is unclear. Or we see the path of obedience and we realize, oh my goodness, that is so difficult to do. And so... That is the moment that we uh, are challenged to wait on the Lord. I think that, I think as in general, I'll say this, that we tend to use this idea of waiting on the Lord in, in slightly off-focus circumstances. Uh, for instance, many times we're waiting on the Lord to figure out things like, um, hey, where should I go to college? Or should I take that job? Or should I be in this relationship? Um, we, look to, we wait on the Lord for very specific guidance that is neither obedience or disobedience. We just don't know how to make the decision. So we're looking to God to help and give us some very specific pointers or tips or evidence on how we ought to do. What I want to say to that is, in most of those cases, in all of those cases, God does have a specific will, but you can't mess it up. And so He looks to you and He gives you His general will, which is what? I want you to know me and trust me and love me and relate to me to make those decisions. And so let's just, I was going to use, uh, should you go to USC or Clemson as an example, but I think many of you would say, well, definitely one or the other is a sin. Um, so I'm going to say Harvard or Yale. Let's say your choice is Harvard or Yale. You're very intelligent. You can go to either one. Uh, the question then God would ask is not whether Harvard is his will or Yale is his will for you, but can you know him and trust him and grow closer to him in either one of those places? And if one has a, a benefit to that particular oh, a commandment to know me and trust me and obey me, then the other then certainly ought to pick this one. But if, if all things are considered equal, you may choose the one you desire to choose. So thinking about waiting on the Lord, this actively looking for opportunities to obey God, if we're going to apply this to Saul's situation, this is how it would look. So uh, what was... Saul supposed to do that the Philistines have invaded Israel what was he supposed to do he's supposed to go to Gilgal send message to Samuel and wait seven days he did that congratulations Saul way to go but when did things become unclear when did things become difficult to, to interpret or to know how to act is when after seven days Samuel did not show up and the people were scattering this is the moment of difficulty for Saul and so if all of us were uh, any one of us were his advisor. Knowing what we know from this, here's the thing I think we might tell him. I think we might look at Saul and, and we might say to him, if he says, what should I do? I think we might say, let the army scatter. Let the army scatter. Let God win this battle for you. Your job isn't to have a big army and to defeat the Philistines through your might. Your job is to obey God. 
Trust God. Obey. Wait. Will it be difficult and worrisome? For sure. And so if I were preaching this sermon to Saul this morning, what would I look back to? What would I point to him in his present or in his future to encourage him to obey? I would probably say, listen, remember Egypt. It's what, what the Old Testament does through and through. The whole thing. Remember what God did in Egypt. He took a slave people who were not an army and He defeated the greatest army known to man at that point, Egypt, without them lifting an arm. I would point to him the, the conquest of Canaan, the land of giants. Well, how did that happen? God was faithful and conquered for His people. I think I would point to the story of Gideon from his past. Gideon was a judge. And what did God do? God took Gideon and 300 men and a bunch of clay pots and some torches and He defeated a mighty army with that. And so I'd say, King Saul, remember what God has done. Remember who God is. God is a big God. Wait for Him now. I would even point... Uh, to, to the promise God made to Abraham. What is the promise God made to Abraham? He said, I will bless, through your offspring, I will bless the entire world. And I would say, King Saul, has that happened yet? No, it has not. So you need to trust that you are part of God's plan here and now. So wait and obey. Look for an opportunity to obey. I think so what we all might say to him in hindsight. But the reality is, is I'm not preaching to Saul this morning. I'm preaching to God's people, His church, who have been what? Saved through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. And, and you know what else? You and me, we are just like Saul. We're just like him. How are we like Saul? Where do we find our comfort? Think about this. Where do we generally find our comfort? We find our comfort in the amount of our resources, <laughs> the timing of our plans, and the status of of our reputation, our success. How is that different than Saul? It's exactly the same. It's exactly the same. And so when these things become threatened, we freak out. We freak out. And so waiting on the Lord will always be in hard circumstances. Why? Because that is the moment where things become unclear and uncomfortable. Brian Chappell says it this way. I think this is just a wonderful quote. I'll read it slowly so you can soak it in. How tempting it is in pressured situations to seek security by almost any means other than by waiting on God. But the safest place to be is always in a position of trust in the Lord whatever circumstantial storms may be raging all around us. That's just a wonderful phrase. Circumstantial storms. So when things rage around us, when change is, is blustering about us, when things are uncomfortable or uncertain, what are we going to do? Are we going to use our, our own comforts as justification to disobey God? Or are we going to sit patiently and wait for an opportunity to obey our Lord? I was reading in a devotional this week, um, and it quoted Hebrews 12, and I think it's pertinent to this. I think it relates well. And in Hebrews 12, the author there is talking about how God will, it says, once again, once again, Shake heaven and earth. And it says that I use this word once again, and he says I, I use it to indicate the removal of things that are shaken. So I'm gonna, bear with me here. God shakes heaven and earth again. Why? To, to remove the things that are shaken. That is the things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Here's the idea. 
in that moment with Saul, in that moment with us, when we look to our resources or our timing of our plan or our own reputation or success, and things aren't going the way we think, that is in a sense a shaking of our world. And why is it shaking? So that God can show you that things that shake never last. And the things that don't last for eternity. And what doesn't shake? The plan, the love, the invitation of God. So when we are challenged in uncertain times, difficult times, instead of saying, if God only knew how hard this was, if God only knew how difficult this was, if God only knew how lonely I was, if God only knew how unhealthy I was, if God only knew how whatever, fill in the blank, I was or this is, He surely would understand why I'm going to do things my own way in my own time for my own glory. Instead of doing that, we need to remember that our God is not small. Our God's not small. Our God is not the God that Saul references here. He's not the God that that one takes lightly. Our God is eternal and almighty and loving and inviting. He's the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And God does know. God does know how fill-in-the-blank things are for you. And what is He doing in these moments of uncertainty? He's shaking the world. Why? How? For what purpose? He's shaking so that the things, the only things that are left in our life are the unshakable things. And so we wait. We wait upon the Lord, church. May we wait upon the Lord. And what is that? Actively looking for opportunities, opportunities to obey our God. And so since I'm preaching to the church, not Saul, I'm preaching to you, I'm preaching to me, what evidence should I go to for us to be enticed to trust God even when things are unclear? What promises or, or events should I look to, to to bolster our patience as we wait for God? Here's what I would like to point to. First of all, I point to the past work and promises of Jesus Christ. Think about just the last couple of weeks, what we've seen. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. It's a promise. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. That's a promise and a truth. It's a dependable actuality. Those are words coming to you that that should bolster you and help when times are unclear to feel uh, like you stand on a foundation. I also point to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's something that really happened, that really happened for you, that that is relevant in the day today. What did it earn? Power over sin. It earned your salvation, your justification. You stand in, in a right way before God. Not because of anything you've done, but for everything that Christ did for you. I point to the promise that, that Jesus will be with us always. I go to Matthew 28. And lo, I will be with you till the end of the age. How? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I also point to the future. What is the promise of Jesus Christ? I will return. And when I return, I will wipe away every tear. He's not just bringing paradise. He's undoing difficulty and sadness. 100% of the way, it's gone. He's undoing it. These are the things, church, that we need to found our waiting on God upon. Why do we wait and look for opportunities to obey? Because of who God is, who Jesus is, and because the Spirit is a real person who is with us. For those of you this morning that I hope are still listening, if, that you do not know Jesus. This is one of the benefits of having online worship like we've had is 
many people can access it that wouldn't have come to church before or, or may um, feel uncomfortable with that. I want to address you this morning. I want to start by just saying our God is not small. God is not small. And I don't want to offend you, so I'm going to start by offending myself first. I'm going to say that uh, there's a likely chance that in many ways you are much smarter than me. So I want you to hear that first. You, you are likely smarter than I am. All right? But neither one of us are smarter than God. Neither one of us is smarter than God. God is not impoverished in His understanding of your life, my life, the world, what's going on. God does not have a lack of understanding. Like Saul here, thinking that if God just understood the circumstances, he would understand. God does understand our circumstances. God knows better than anyone. In fact, we are the ones who don't have all the information. So I want to tell you this morning, God is not small. God is big. And he is loving and he is just and he is inviting and he has a plan that does not move. It's unshakable. Even though our lives shake all the way through from beginning to end. And so I want to encourage you this morning, accept that reality. That God is big. He's bigger than you. He's bigger than me. He understands more. He knows more. And there is a way to have a relationship with that unshakable God. And that is through Jesus Christ our Lord. He died for our sins. We deserve that death. He took it. He lived a life that was perfect, that we are supposed to be living, but we cannot. And because of our faith, if we have faith that these things are for us, He gives us that righteousness so that we can have a relationship with God for eternity. And so believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I do pray that you would cause all of us, whether we've been in a long-standing relationship with you for most of our lives, or we are new to this, or we have not yet started, cause all of us to trust you, trust you, when things get unclear, when things become uncertain, when Samuel comes a day late, when we are unsure how to proceed, and yet the things that we, we have our security in are being shaken and threatened, I pray that we choose to sit and wait in the storms of this life and look for an opportunity to obey you, our Father. That's what you call us to do, to wait upon you. I pray that that is true. I pray that for as long as this pandemic and this crisis goes on, that we would be diligent in loving our neighbors, taking care of those who are in need, forgiving one another, and not forsaking the fellowship. However that might come, I pray, Lord, that we would commit to being back together at some point in some way. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring relief to our world so that your faithful might worship again. Lord, I love you. Thank you for the story of Saul. Thank you for uh, the examples you give us most of the time on how not to be, and then we see ourselves in it. And I just thank you, Lord, that you are so faithful and so loving and kind and gracious that you not cast us out, yet you invite us in in the name of Jesus Christ under the payment of his blood and the victory of his resurrection. And we pray in the name of that Jesus. Amen.